So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Thanks for that reading, Stuart. Uh, let me add my welcome to Mark's. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're kicking off this new series uh, for Term 4. Um, so let me ask you to pray with me that God would help us um, as we look at his word together, as we grapple with a really rich passage um, that's very challenging as well. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you too that you are a speaking God, that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask now that you might help us uh, by your Spirit to wrestle well with your word, that we might not only hear it but heed it. Help us to respond and live in the light of your great promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we kick off our series in 1 Peter, uh, you've heard from Mark already that we've titled it Glorious Exiles. But what's it like to be an exile from your homeland? What's it like to be a refugee? Mbumbe Menga is a 46-year-old male from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he knows 
something of what it's like. He tells his story this way. I came to Burundi to escape the war between the government and the militias in my country. As a Christian, I had spoken out against the war, and that made me a target for the militias. We worked out that our lives were in danger, and so I fled the country with my wife, my three young children, and a nephew. Within a few days of leaving, I found out that my younger brother had been killed. We heard briefly after that that our house had been burned down. We were interviewed many times after we arrived in Burundi about whether we would have refugee status by the UN and eventually were received. It's very difficult, though, to support your family in a camp. It would be impossible to return to the Congo now. Life isn't good here either, and if it doesn't improve, I'll ask to be relocated to another country. That kind of story is mirrored by many of the Kareni and Burmese brothers and sisters that we have in our own church here. Uh, A story like many of theirs is Pastor Bu Nangling from the Chin State. Uh, He spoke of his experience this way. In 1981, I became a Christian and I started preaching the good news in my village. But soon after this, the military forces controlled by the government came and took away my travel documents. They stopped me from continuing to build the church that I was working on. And so I had to report to the authorities every night. They would call me to make bribes to them. And this went on for years and years and years. I endured it for so long, but in August 2009, I decided to leave. With the help of traffickers, we went mainly at night with very little food over a couple of weeks. I with my young family. It took us over two weeks to get to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. I borrowed money. I sold all of my wife's jewellery just to pay the traffickers, and yet I still owe them money, and they continue to chase me. Within six months of us getting there, I was arrested because I didn't have any card. I now have a UNHCR card, but I still find it hard here. After five months in prison and then freed again, my kids are still unable to school. We are stuck. You see, the experience of an exile away from their true home is so often a really difficult trial, full of suffering. And yet in the very opening verse of this letter 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter can describe the Christians that he's writing to as exiles. Believers scattered through the Roman provinces. Have a look again at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here's his greeting to these scattered sufferers as he kicks off his letter. They're in areas um, that are now part of the modern-day nation of Turkey. But as he uses this term, exiles, it's a term that's been used a lot in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was those that had been forced out of the Promised Land, Israelites, who had turned their back on God because of their idolatry, and God had brought judgment upon them. And so the northern kingdom had been smashed in 721 BC as the Assyrians came through. And then the southern kingdom, about 150 years later, 587, and they're removed and they go to Babylon. Exiles were those who were under God's judgment. And yet, in the New Testament, it's a term that's used a lot as well, but it's not of a group of people that are under God's punishment. 
Rather, it's people who have turned to faith in Jesus and yet are opposed and persecuted because of their trust in God's Messiah. But that does bring us to the question that I want us to consider tonight. And that is, why are all believers really glorious exiles? Not just those that Peter was writing to in the first century. Why is it also true of believers today? Why are all believers glorious exiles? Well, firstly, it's because we suffer while we await a much better place. Because we suffer while we await a much better place. Have a look again at verses 3 to 5. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice how Peter starts off here at the start of verse 3, offering praise or thanks to God. But what is he praising God for? Well, in the first instance here in this section from uh, verses 3 to 5, it's about the new birth. That's a phrase that refers to a person being born again, or in more theological terms, regenerated, given new life through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a phrase that's used in John 3 to be spoken of as being born again. It's a phrase, too, that's used in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, talks about this new life that comes in terms of a heart transformation, that a heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is given so the person may be able to respond to God's word. And so it's a revolutionary change, this new life that comes as God works in a person. This is not something that sinners deserve. It's certainly not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. It's purely an act of God's mercy, as Peter says at the end of verse 3. And this revolutionary change gives us a living hope. We have now a bright future if we've trusted in Christ. We look forward. Our orientation is now different. And this is not some wishful, empty hope. Peter says it's a living hope because it's based on somebody who has life in himself, in Christ who has been raised from the dead, who can there give life to anyone who trusts in him, who will then share in his resurrection life. Because when Jesus died and then rose again, he shattered the gates of death. And he reigns now as the living Lord at the right hand of the Father. And so those who commit themselves to him share in this new life. And one day they'll enjoy its full reality in heaven. And that future hope, notice, it it involves an inheritance in verse 4. Unlike the Old Testament, where the inheritance was very earthbound, Abraham and his descendants and the nation of Israel, the promise, remember, was land. It was a piece of real estate in the Middle East. In this marred world, they were promised a a stretch of land that they would live in. But notice here, Christians look forward to an eternal heavenly reward. And the point is that while the believers that Peter is writing to may be suffering in this age as exiles, they have a great future to look forward to. There is waiting for them a reward. There is glory that will follow their current exile. And notice how Peter uses three adjectives to describe it. 
It's incorruptible, firstly. It's something that won't perish. It can't decay. can't be lost. It's undefiled, which means that it's morally pure. It's unspoilt. And thirdly, it's unfading. It's not going to wither like a flower that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's not going to lose its shine, an unfading inheritance. And we know that this inheritance can't be lost because we're told that it's kept by God at the end of verse 4. But not only is our inheritance kept, but also believers are kept by God. Did you notice in verse 5? Now, the promise here is not that God will protect us from all harm, that we won't face any difficulty. Quite the opposite, as we'll see in verses 6 to 9 again. Rather, the goal of this protection is our salvation, which is to be revealed at the end of the age. And so Jesus will return to reward those who have trusted in him. The picture is like a soldier who is guiding people through hostile enemy territory, guiding defenseless people and making sure they have safe escort through. And that's what God does with the believer. He takes them through this life of exile so that they may attain the salvation that is promised that they will make it through to heaven, the consummation of their salvation. As we think about these massive promises from God in verses 3 to 5, it does beg the question of whether we reflect on these things regularly. If you're a believer here tonight, are these things that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Because I think it's true that so often we're caught up in this world, the pressures of day to day, the thing that I've got to do tomorrow at work, the events that are coming up, And so I just have no time, I tell myself, to think ahead of the promises that God puts before me. I'm so caught up in the here and now. Everyone's living for the now. So our lives are often shaped by these pressures. You see in this picture, uh, it's a, a famous artwork of the pilgrims in the United States. These were part of the Puritans from England who went to the United States. And both in England and the US, the Puritans were known for spending the first hour of every day thinking about where they were going, their goal of heaven, so that they might put their life into perspective. Well, how long is it since you've done that? I think our pragmatism today often makes us think that that's irrelevant. You know, I just haven't got time for that. But if we had that kind of outlook as they did, then it would be invaluable for us to think rightly about our earthly experiences. I think our lack of our future orientation is often a guide to how earthbound we are in our thinking, how rooted we are in this world. But if we had this future perspective, if we looked ahead to heaven, we would be enabled to press on to our goal with God's perspective on our world. But notice there's a sharp contrast after these great promises of verses 3 to 5, suddenly verses 6 to 9. There's the current reality for Peter's readers. Despite this wonderful future inheritance, what they're facing now is really hard. So notice from verse 6, Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, that is this great salvation, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer. Grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, 
glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy, inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, the Christian hope should lead to joy. Verse 6 and verse 8. In spite of the present reality of pain and suffering that we often face, just think about the outward circumstances of a Christian in the first century for a moment. They lived under a Roman Empire where many of the emperors made it their goal in the first couple of centuries of the church's life to harass the Christians. They were seen as an annoying sect of people that wouldn't give their allegiance to the emperor, wouldn't bow down and worship him. Instead, they had this Jesus that they focused on. And they faced all kinds of difficulties. Peter doesn't tell us the particular trials that his readers were suffering at this time. Perhaps it was economic persecution. That's the kind of thing that James's readers faced in his letter, where he addressed similar themes. Perhaps it was just physical violence, mistreatment in different ways. Whatever it was, it was probably those things and more. There's a malicious intent involved which sits behind these words in the original Greek. But in verse 7, Peter sees that these trials can be used by God. They're used as a test of a believer's faith that will actually refine them, just like fire refines gold and removes the dross and all the impurities are taken away as it's heated to super levels and so that what is left is just pure. In the same way, God is at work in his people as they face difficulties in this life. Not only this, but it will produce praise and glory and honour to Jesus on his return, did you notice? Well, what do you long for? The approval of people in this life or the approval of God who values more than any earthly treasure a believer who is committed and growing in their trust in him through all the ups and downs of life. Committed genuine faith is far more valuable in God's eyes. And notice that the focus of a believer's joy in verse 8 is Jesus. It's all about our love for him, the joy that we have of being in him by faith. And so he is the object of a Christian's love, the goal of their joy in the face of their earthly trials. Now, maybe as you hear all this talk about trials and difficulties, perhaps your life to this point has been fairly easy. And maybe this seems really pessimistic as you hear a section like this in the Bible. But I want to say to you, the Bible's being realistic with you, not pessimistic. The Christian will experience hardship because of their faith. If you haven't seen it to this point, you will in the future. The New Testament, in a number of places, actually promises us that we will face hardship. Paul and Barnabas, when they were instructing the young Christians at Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, they say in Acts 14, verse 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. As standard teaching as people became believers, know what the cost of discipleship is. And so trials in this life, they're not an unexpected interruption. They're the standard, unescapable, inescapable uh, lot of a believer. We've got to grasp that trials 
are part and parcel of life. Indeed, God will use them. They're a vehicle for his work in our life. And that's why in James's letter, in James 1 verse 2, he famously says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. Pure joy. Why? How can he speak like that? Well, he goes on in verses 3 and 4 of James 1 to say, because it will produce perseverance, because it will produce maturity in a follower of Jesus. And that's Peter's arguing, argument here. Now, suffering is actually a badge of discipleship. And in addition to refining our faith, it will bring glory to God. Now, I grant you, to this point in Australia's, Australia's European history, we have not faced a lot of persecution in this country, at least compared to many believers around the world who have faced horrendous things. But I put it to you that things are slowly changing in our nation. You know, we've seen the introduction of the same-sex marriage uh, laws in December of 2017, almost two years ago now. But the debate that surrounded that um, was quite anti in its Christian sentiment. And we've just had new abortion laws just passed a month ago in our own state here that are fairly radical, that basically allow abortion up to the point of delivery if two doctors will sign off on it. Euthanasia seems to be the next thing on the progressive agenda for change. It's something that's been talked about a lot in the last five years or so. And just at the end of August, our Attorney General, Christian Porter, unveiled the draft Religious Discrimination Act. One Christian commented about the draft act this way. The response of our government in the Religious Discrimination Act and the response of those who have heard it in our Society is proof, if further proof were needed, that there is no longer a shared vision of good in our country. The common good is no longer common. The common ground is shrinking and fast. Religious leaders are scathing about the legislation and the lack of consultation to this point. But so are the gay activist groups. And some would say that if both sides are unhappy, perhaps the government is doing something right. But Christian Porter's legislation is the government's way, he says, of putting a legal fence around two warring neighbours to keep them apart. It's an admission that the age of reproachment is over. No finding a middle ground, no harmonious resolution. Porter's declaration that the legislation is a shield, as he says, a protection from discrimination claims, rather than a sword a promotion of religious freedom shows this to be the case. Shields, after all, are designed to parry the blows of an opponent. They do protect, but only insofar as you actively hold them up. And that means that we're going to be kept busy. Faith-based groups, including schools, can expect to spend an inordinate amount of time fending off the blows in the next few years. Well, I think he's right. This is where Australia is moving at this time. This is the world that we live in. And as we apply these themes further and think about this for ourselves today, we need to grasp more strongly, I think, as Christians, that we really are to live as foreigners in this world. We've often been very comfortable in Australia. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 18 to 20. 
to make it clear how those who are not believers think quite differently and have different goals. Whereas I have told you before, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul and also Peter in our passage tonight is saying, don't put roots down here in this world. This is not your home. If you're a believer, you are passing through. You're not living for this world. Your hope does not lie here. And so don't collect material things and live for earthly pleasures as if this place were your hope. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work hard to serve others. It doesn't mean we don't pray for our nation. We don't work for good. We don't declare the good news and care about our world. Not at all. But it does mean that Christian faith will issue in a future orientation. We will actually focus less on the present and more on our heavenly home. Which brings me to a second answer. Second answer to this question of why are all believers exiles? Well, secondly, because that was the pattern of our Saviour. That was the pattern for Jesus' life, our Saviour. Notice how Peter states that in verses 10 to 12, particularly verse 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So the prophets here are speaking about the prophets of the Old Testament who, apart from often bringing a word of condemnation from God upon his nation turning away, were also holding out a future day of salvation. They kept announcing that there was a Messiah who was coming, that one day there was a great hope that would arrive. But see, they never got to see it in their lifetime. They were very conscious that they weren't seeing the fulfilment of these promises. It was pointing forward to a later day. And so Peter, as he writes to his readers, conscious of all the struggles that they're facing, says, you know that you stand in a more privileged position than even the greatest of the prophets from all the centuries gone by because they never saw the fulfilment of these things like you have. You now live the other side of the cross and so you know what God has done. This salvation that has come through Jesus. And not only do you know about the salvation that is in Christ, but you now know about the pattern that you are to follow. Because you're called to follow Jesus. And his pattern was suffering and then glory to follow. Well, what are they talking about there in verse 11? Well, of course, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. As he served, he, crowds flocked to begin with, didn't they? They wanted to hear his teaching. Then as time came along, there was great opposition to Christ. They eventually persecuted, they plotted to kill him. 
And eventually, of course, he's taken and arrested and crucified. And there, as he dies to save, including the people that are nailing him to the cross, they mock him. The suffering of the Messiah, the suffering servant. But then there's the glory to follow. He is raised on the third day. He appears to his disciples. He then ascends to the Father's right hand and rules from on high. Suffering, then glory. And the Christian experience parallels that of their Saviour. Suffering in this life, glory to come. Neither Christ nor his people received the crown of glory without the crown of thorns first. That's how it works. I think we struggle in a very comfortable, rich, affluent society like Australia because we're used to being comfortable. And it seems like an oxymoron to us that you could have good news that involves suffering. How can you have a gospel of suffering? Surely it's got to be good. But Jesus calls Christians to follow him. And he says quite bluntly and clearly, it involves a great cost. Luke 9 verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross preceded the crown. Suffering precedes heaven for us. And look, many believers have come to experience that in this life. Some of you may know Eugenia Pine and her daughter Joy. They've been part of our church for the last decade. They moved to Sydney at the start of this year. Eugenia knows something of suffering now and having a living hope, looking towards the glory to come. She comes from Liberia. She was there as one of the bloodiest battles in Africa took place, the Liberian Civil War from 1989 to 1996. 200,000 Liberians killed in seven years, one million of them scattered beyond the borders of the country, fleeing the destruction. Eugenia was one of those who fled. She makes it across the border to Guinea, but she flees because her husband has already been killed. Her brother, her pregnant cousin, a whole bunch of other relatives as their village was attacked by militias and set on fire. She left behind her mother and four brothers and three sisters who survived. But she went to a camp, hopeful of a new future. But she described what she experienced in the camp as nine years in a box. No educational facilities for her two sons that she took with her. No medical help. She'd already had a young daughter die in Liberia because of the war. She had no food to feed her with and she died of malnourishment. She gave birth to a second daughter in the camp. Her daughter came down with a fever. They said, we've got nothing to help you with. There is no medication. We have cold water. And so she died in her arms. After nine years, they eventually said, you're on a list, Eugenia. You're going to Australia. She hadn't put a name on a list. She hadn't applied for anything. She didn't know where Australia was. But she'd made a list of women at risk in the camp and her and her two sons came to Australia. 
a lot of fear and trepidation as well as excitement. There was finally hope. But how would they be treated? Would Australia receive them? She landed in Wollongong. Second day, she walked down the mall and found that people were smiling at her. And she decided that this was going to be more of a home than the home that she'd left. She met her husband, second husband, in the camp. He'd survived a machete attack. He'd seen his two brother-in-laws killed and his parents. He followed her a few years later. But then one of her two sons who came here with her died of leukemia. It's been a hard journey. All Christians are exiles. Your story may never quite match Eugenia's. Praise be to God if that's so. But we need to entrust ourselves to God who stands with his people, exiles as they are, and gives them a living hope. And that's exactly what Eugenia and Lindgren have. They're firm in their faith after all of that bloodshed. They have a sure and certain hope of the glory to come. You know, their story is just one of millions. One of millions. Each month, on average, 330 Christians are killed around the world. Each month. 772 are physically attacked. 214 Christian churches or properties are burnt to the ground. Each month. That's the world we live in. Open Doors has been compiling the worst places to live for believers for many years now. You can see the map for 2018. North Korea still wins. It's still number one. And worldwide, Open Doors uh, stats show that 4,305 Christians were killed for their faith last year alone. Sometimes we don't feel that or sense that living in Australia. And so as we apply these truths about being glorious exiles to ourselves, we need to be reminded in a safer country like ours that Jesus himself said, John 15 verse 20, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Notice how there's no ifs or buts there. You're only going to be loved in this world if you are of this world. If you are with Jesus, then you're going to face difficulty. But we need to realize as we live this life that we also can affirm the promise of Romans 8.28 and many other parts of the Bible. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. He will keep shaping and moulding those who are his. You might say, well, how do I know that Romans 8.28 is true? How do I know this is going to work out for good in my life? I'm sure there'll be people here tonight that have faced horrendous things, who are facing really difficult things right now. Well, the reason you know that Romans 8.28 is true is because of the cross. Here is the darkest day in human history. The Son of God being nailed to a cross and killed at seemingly hopeless 
case. All his disciples and friends have left him and deserted him. And there he hangs with a few women watching, being beside criminals. And yet on that darkest of days, God is working out his perfect sovereign plan to bring salvation, to offer you life, new life. God can use the hardest things to produce glory to him. Christ's unique substitutionary death also means that God has put an end date to all the trials and testing of this world. Because one day Jesus will return and he'll take those who are his to be with him and they will know the glory that they have been promised. My prayer tonight is that we might have the attitude of these Pakistani Christians. Pakistan is the fifth most difficult place on the planet to live if you're a believer, according to Open Doors. Here is a group of guys who are doing a public protest against the persecution of Christians in this completely Muslim dominated country. That's a courageous protest. Why could they do that? How could they hold up a sign like that? Well, because they know they're not citizens of Pakistan. They're citizens of heaven. No one can take away their inheritance. It's theirs because of Jesus. Well, do you truly know that for yourself? Or are your roots so deep in this world that you've lost sight of what God has got on offer for you in Christ? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have one who paid the price, who presented the pattern as well for us, suffering now and glory to come. Lord God, help us to see what you call us to in this life, but also to appreciate the wonderful, glorious promises for those who, by faith, are shielded until the day of salvation is complete. Lord God, we thank you for the living hope that we have through faith in Jesus if we've come to trust in him. Lord, I pray for all those who have that hope tonight to cling strongly to Christ. And for any who are not clear where they stand, Lord, we pray that you might help them to grasp your great love and mercy in the sending of your son for them. We thank you for his payment on our behalf. We thank you for the inheritance that comes to those who are in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.